1: In the horror film, Knock at the Cabin, a gay couple and their young daughter are vacationing at a remote cabin when four strangers arrive with weapons and take them hostage. The group appears remorseful as they inform the family that the world is ending and that they've been led to this cabin by psychic visions. And further, that the only thing that will prevent the apocalypse is if one of the family members willingly sacrifices his or her life. Are the strangers lying about their motivations? Has the family been targeted by homophobes or cultists? Or might the world actually be ending? That's the tension director M. Night Shyamalan is playing with. I'm Glenn Weldon, and today we're talking about Knock at the Cabin on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Joining me today is host of Weekend Edition Sunday, Aisha Roscoe. Hey, Aisha. Hey. Welcome, welcome. Also joining us is NPR Consider This producer, Mark Rivers. Hey, Mark. Hey, Glenn. Thanks for having me. Of course. Let's get to it. So in Knock at the Cabin, Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge star as Eric and Andrew, whose vacation with their young daughter Wen, played by Christian Choi, is interrupted by a home invasion. Dave Bautista plays Leonard, the leader of the group that takes the family hostage, a group consisting of Nikki amuka Bird, Rupert Grint, and Abby Quinn. The strangers claim to be experiencing apocalyptic visions and are convinced that the end of the world can only be avoided through blood sacrifice. The film was directed by M. Night Shyamalan and is based on Paul Tremblay's 2018 novel, A Cabin at the End of the World. Knock at the Cabin is in theaters now.
2: Mark, start with you. What'd you think? So I'm in a conundrum because on one hand I feel like if I don't recommend this movie I'm afraid the world's gonna end. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> that's the end with Jammolon. I can never have a full embracing of his movie. Um, I mean, on the one hand, I think this is his most confident filmmaking in maybe 20 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, when it comes to his most potent scares, it always tends to revolve around some kind of home invasion. Mm-hmm. I think about that opening scene in The Sixth Sense. I'm thinking about Unbreakable. You know, sure. Science had both a home invasion and an extraterrestrial invasion having this movie be that scenario for him really concentrates and focuses his filmmaking in a way that I just haven't seen from him. I think this guy cannot come up with an uninteresting way of shooting the action, shooting the drama. Like, mm-hmm. I was very involved in that way. I think he's great at just, like, thematically and emotionally telling the story through the camera. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, it's like, he's brilliant, but he's, like, he's kind of daft. Like, so, like, some of the stuff that I'm watching, it's just so silly, and the silliness and the kind of, like, aspiring profundity, it's kind of, like, jerked this way and that. Like, there's not an easy balance to the movie. There's also really good acting here. I think Dave oh. Batista Is really establishing himself as the real deal. I think he gives a really good performance. I think the two leads, uh, Jonathan Groff and um, Ben Aldris, they're very good. But I think they're carrying a script that is not doing enough work for them. I think some of the emotion it tries to reach towards the end was not fully earned. And the performers were trying to bring it over the hump, but it wasn't quite there. I don't know. Some of the messaging feels a little bit muddled. I can imagine someone coming away from this movie thinking, do the QAnon people have a, do they have it right? Are they on to something? I don't know. So I was hoping for a little more ambiguity there, but, but there was less ambiguity to this movie than I hoped, and I was kind of disappointed in that. But, like someone gives you, he gives you a lot, while at the same time not giving you enough.
1: Yeah, you know, he's known for twists, but yeah. he's been getting away from that recently. What yeah. you're talking yeah. about at the end of this film is not so much a twist, but a revelation that the audience needs to go along with, just nod along with. And right. I didn't feel a lot of people nodding along with it. <laughs> Aisha, you read the book.
3: I have read the book.
1: Were you nodding along?
3: I was not nodding along. So first of all, I really like Shyamalan. Y'all know that. Mm-hmm. I like Ode. Mm-hmm. And I like, obviously, his classic movies and signs and uh, and all of that. I also like some of the, hit the TV shows he's produced. So I am a fan. So let's get that mm-hmm. out of the way. I think this movie, De Batista, was great, amazing. I think the actors, the acting, I think that was great. You know, the little girl is so cute. It is very scary when they start breaking into the house. That is like very visceral and it is evocative, right? I don't have a complaint about that. I think the issue for me is the plot, Uh which I think for a lot of it, it was very close to the source material of the book. I will admit, I didn't necessarily love all of the book. Much respect to Paul Tremblay. But I think like part of the issue is that this drills down to a question. Would you sacrifice a member of your family to save 7 billion other people? And that is like an interesting dinner party question.
2: <laughs> little icebreaker.
3: But I think if you're going to make that into a movie, I want more. I want more of a discussion. And no, just people just talking is not action. But that's kind of what the whole plot is. Like, I yeah. want a real grappling with this. Instead, we kind of get someone going, no, I wouldn't do that. And then someone's kind of like, hmm, maybe they have a point. <laughs>
2: yeah. like,
3: and I'm like... No, like there's so many questions that I have that aren't in the movie that like, well, why is everybody else worth more than my family? Like they don't really get into that. Why should we save other people and like get rid of ourselves? And then the other question that no one asks that bothers me to the end of the time is like, well, if these people are right and we're not saying they're right in the movie, well, you got to watch and find out why would I sacrifice my family member when next week somebody else could face the same question, make a different decision, <laughs> and we all die anyway? And I done gave my family away?
1: <laughs> yep.
3: Why? Yep. No one ever asked that. And that yep. bothers me. And then I do think it was not ambiguous enough. You know, if you want to lean into the idea of something, of there maybe being more, right? Mm-hmm. Like to life, to the world. But then I think you have to be clear about the tone. Mm-hmm. I didn't understand. Is this a thriller? Is this a family movie? Is this a happy story? Is this a sad story? Is this mm-hmm. is this an apocalyptic story? I wasn't clear. I wasn't yeah. clear by the end.
2: I think it was trying to be all of those things. And yeah, it wasn't like, totally successful <laughs> that, at any of them.
3: That was that's my issue.
1: Yeah. The plot is supposed to have this central ambiguity, the central question, but what we get in this film is a tonal ambiguity that just ends up being puzzling. Mm-hmm. Here's what I liked about the film. I like the pace. We don't waste a lot of time here. We're in and out in an hour and a half, just over an hour and a half. This tension does steadily increase. We get moments of, like, deflation, where you give the audience a breather. I like that. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing about the film, frankly, is I like the fact that these four strangers are strangers to one another, and they are deeply ambivalent about not only what their purpose is, but they're ambivalent about each other. Yeah, <laughs> And what they're bringing to the table here. And... What relatively little humor there is in this pretty grim film comes from that tension. I like that. I did think it was an interesting choice to have it take place entirely in daylight, in bright Mm -hmm. daylight. I mean, if you're a horror movie, that is tying one hand behind your back, right? Uh, I respected that choice. I do agree with you, Aisha. The novel does go harder, and not coincidentally, I think the ending works better in the novel. That's all I can really say. And look, this is only the second movie Shyamalan has ever made that has an R rating. The first one was 15 years ago, The Happening in in 2008. This, I think, is very intentionally humorless Mm -hmm. or nearly humorless. Mm -hmm. And I got to say, in the year 2023, you go into a horror movie with an R rating, I was expecting something a lot more intense and violent, frankly, than what we got here. What was that R rating yeah. there for?
3: Yeah. I mean, a lot of the violence in the movie happens pretty much, almost all of it happens off screen. A lot uh-huh. of it. I think we can say that. Like, yeah. Yeah. it's not a violent, gory movie when it could have been, and mm-hmm. it, it was
2: not. And the bloodlessness of it. Made me think that what we're seeing we shouldn't trust. Maybe uh-huh. it led me to the thinking that maybe he will pull the rug out from under us, which is a thing that he's done in the past. But not quite. This had a kind of clear direction and was going to get there no matter what. You know, oh. there's, so there's a mo- momentum to it, but also a lack of mystery to it as well when it comes to that. Yeah, both the
1: book and the film make the central couple gay, and they do that. That is a very deliberate choice. Mm-hmm. It's a gambit, right? Like this whole thing is about the ambiguity: are they what they seem? Do they actually believe what they're telling us? To give, like, more uncertainty to the strangers' motivations, you know? Are they targeting a gay couple out of some kind of perverse religious fanaticism or your basic garden-variety North American homophobic bigotry? So that was an extra layer in the film
2: that making the gay couple adds. how that land on you? I thought the movie tried to establish how these two characters would kind of react to the situation in like different ways. You have one character who he he has had a kind of trauma in the past and has now become someone who's been put on the defensive through life. And then you have another character who's kind of maybe seen more of kind of soft and maybe more cautious and maybe more of a pushover maybe. And I like that the movie tried to establish the characters in that way. If you think about this movie in relation to COVID, it becomes kind of interesting. I think his last movie... Old also felt like a very covid appropriate movie. You have the story about, you know, kind of getting old before you know it. you know, time mm-hmm. just flashing before your eyes mm-hmm. in in that way. And then this movie, where this couple, this family, goes on vacation, they're not only kind of going on vacation, they're kind of getting away from the world. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's kind of a flashback where you see, you see one of the characters is, it gets assaulted, and, and you get the sense that they are trying to escape from the world for, for just a minute. And there's a poignancy to this couple, this kind of family, trying to escape from the world, an extra poignancy to kind of realizing that, you know, you can't escape from the world, the world's going to come for you. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted the movie to dive into that more. Like That felt all kind of, like, sketched, but not fully... Dimensionalize, if that makes sense. You know, like I thought it had the necessary ingredients to make the ending more powerful through who these people were and why they were where they were, but it didn't fully deliver there.
1: Yeah, Mark, I mean you you nailed exactly my expectations and ultimately I think why the film didn't quite land on me. Look, I am a gay man who lives in a cabin in the woods in a rural (laughs) community. That is not exactly P-Town or Fire Island, okay? okay? So I was expecting this film to go all in on my very real anxieties, but it didn't particularly. And I, I think that has to do with how broadly this gay couple is drawn. They're pretty idealized. You know, we're told at one point that their their love is pure, whatever. <laughs> They're idealized in a way that any marginalized group gets idealized in mm. fiction. First, we are... The villains. Then, next phase is we're the innocent victims. Then, we're the allies and sidekicks. And then finally, maybe down the road, we get to tell our own damn stories. They are pitched here as the innocent victims. We've done nothing wrong. Our love is pure. There wasn't enough gnarliness. There wasn't enough specificity to this family, to the contours of the relationship. And I was thinking about that because there is a um, 2019 film, Canadian horror film called Spiral, basically exactly the same setup gay couple with a young daughter in a remote location gets beset by others, I'll just say. But the thing is, that couple was drawn so that from the jump, we could see the dynamics of this relationship, how easily Mm -hmm. somebody could come in and find the chinks in their armor, the power differential, their little resentments of each other, and could exploit them, you know, because they didn't have this perfect golden love. They were real. They were afforded the opportunity Mm. (laughs) to be flawed and rounded and real. And I can point you to Mm -hmm. the scenes in this movie where the script is attempting to establish that kind of nuance, but ultimately just didn't buy it. And that's why I really didn't buy the ending. That's where all the marbles are. (laughs)
3: And, you know, I mean, in the book, they had Eric as more religious. They didn't get into that at all, really, Mm -hmm. in this one.
2: Eric is Jonathan Groff's character.
3: Eric is Jonathan Groff. Like, in the book, he was more religious. He was, like, he was Catholic. He was still practicing. And, like, that was a dynamic there that they don't bring out in this movie, which maybe could have added some deeper layers to this. Like, the religiosity and the idea that you might believe in things Mm -hmm. versus... You know, someone else who's more grounded.
2: You know, Shyamalan is interested in faith in matters of belief in the places that it takes us and what it drives us to do. But I'm not sure he's interested in faith in, like, a grown-up way. Like, he's he's almost interested in, in, like, faith, like, do you believe I can pull off this magic trick kind of thing. And it doesn't really feel grounded in, like, a complex reckoning with faith. But a lot of this movie, it could be shot like a silent film. There's so much where I'm watching it, and I'm just like, I know exactly what he's trying. I don't know. He's leading our eye. Emotionally, he's telling us what's happening within the scene. Like, there's so much anonymous filming. I just watched The Shotgun Wedding, the J-Lo movie. Love (laughs) J-Lo. But that movie felt very anonymously directed. Like, anybody could have just, you know, put that through an algorithm that comes out. And with Shyamalan, you just know that he is behind that camera. That's just so refreshing. But so he co-wrote this movie. He's, he's written and directed a lot of his other movies. I'm wondering if it's time for him to back totally away from the written page mm. and maybe take someone else's work and
3: direct and write. It. I think mm. that
2: could maybe unleash or maybe restrain him in a way that could be conducive to a more successful movie. I really like what you're saying, Mark, about
1: his approach to faith and how it's not gritty. It's not about faith where the rubber meets the road, which the
2: book, again, is much more about... It's
3: like Mike Flanagan type explorations of faith. It's like you see
2: all the half-empty glasses of water, like, that can come (laughs) in handy.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This is, as you both have mentioned, this is a real departure for Dave Bautista, and in interviews lately, he has been going all in saying he wants bigger challenges, he doesn't want to play alternate versions of Drax Forever. This gives him a lot more to chew on. You all were big fans, yeah?
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I do get that Dave Bautista, when he shows up, and he's like, I'm a second grade teacher— He's a great actor, but at the same time, you're like, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, were you like throwing them all around all the second graders? They are rough. <laughs> the second graders are rough. Um, but no, but he is a great actor, I think. And I think he's establishing that, right? Like from, you know, glass onion to mm-hmm. this. And like he brought depth to this. You do wonder who is this man? Is he someone yep. we can trust? Mm-hmm. Is he sincere? Is he a big teddy bear? Or is he like some like sadistic killer right you know and you think because of his size it does add this fear right because you know in your mind if he wanted to go off and Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying like if he wanted to he could take these people out by himself that's the thought you don't need no weapons.
1: Without any makeup, any CGI, this dude is a human oh, special yeah. effect. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> and so
3: that adds to the fear because it's like, who is this guy? But I thought yep. he brought a lot of richness to it, his connection with the, the little girl. In his own way, he was being kind, but it felt menacing. Right, like, yeah. so I thought it was very effective.
2: Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's such a physicality and hulking presence to him, but it's like being—it's contrast with this, like almost like childlike innocence. I mean, these—he's so polite, mm-hmm. you know. There are lines like there aren't any Shyamalan movie where you where it could be a clunker for most actors, but he lives with such a quiet conviction. And you know, there's some actors where you can kind of sense that they are not really willing to go where the director wants them to. like almost like they're reading the script for the first time, and they're just like, "I don't know how to say this." Mm-hmm. Battista, he goes there. i think I think he's very convincing throughout. And I think whatever ambiguity there is in the movie, I think it, it mostly is contained in his performance, yeah.
1: I will say, for me, the MVP is Ben Aldrich, who plays the non-groff half of the gay couple. Mm -hmm. Oh,
3: yeah. I was team Andrew. (laughs) Yeah. I
1: mean, this guy is given the most to do. His is arguably the biggest swing in the movie, and yet he gets third or
2: fourth billing. I didn't recognize this guy from Fleabag and other places, but I thought he was great. I totally forgot that he was in Fleabag. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think everybody was good in this movie. No, it's true. I I mean, I think this is some of the best acting, emotional acting that I've seen in a Shallow movie in quite some time. I think they're really carrying it when the writing is not. Absolutely. Well, tell us what you think about Knock at the Cabin. Find us at Facebook at
0: facebook.com slash
1: PCHH. Up next, what is making us happy this week?
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life, Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teledochealthcom slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why.
1: Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. Okay, now it is time for our favorite segment of this week and every week. What is making us happy this week? Mark Rivers, start us off. What is making you happy this week?
2: So I would say what's making me happy is this new HBO series called The Last of Us. Now, I don't play video games anymore, but, you know, back in the day, I was a heavy video game person. But it was one of the last games I did play, and I remember just being really moved by the story. I think it's one of the great stories in a video game. And, you know, there's this idea that video game adaptations are awful. They can't be done well. It's on its third episode now. It's created by the creator of Chernobyl, the HBO miniseries, and also co-created by the creator of the game themselves. And I think they've just made a really strong and moving series so far. It's a post-apocalyptic story. This uh, fungus, which is based in reality, it usually infects ants and things. It mutates and infects humans, and it devastates the world, and and only a few survivors are, are remaining. And I think a lot of apocalyptic or dystopian dramas kind of revel in the societal decay and revel in the brutality that an apocalypse would bring. And I think this show is going another route. You know, there isn't a lot of violence to it. I think it is focusing on morally what are we left with when the world ends and, there's, and this latest episode had this really wonderful love story between these two men it's one of the happiest episodes of dystopia I've ever mm-hmm. seen and it's the biggest departure from the game so far and I think a really successful departure and I think so far the show is just becoming about the things that we choose to hold on to and the lives that we choose to make for ourselves even when there isn't much left so I've, I've been really enjoying it so far yeah that is The Last of Us on HBO
1: and we will be covering that show on this show in the uh, weeks ahead, and Deserved. I have thoughts on thoughts on thoughts on episode three, but we will cover that when we get there. <laughs> Aisha Roscoe, what is making you happy this week?
3: In a totally different direction. I always watch cartoons. That's kind of like one of my things, but it made me think, like, what are those cartoons that an adult can watch that you enjoy and that do really kind of smart things that kind of punch above their weight. And so one of these shows that I think a lot of people missed is the Looney Tunes show. Uh It ran on Cartoon Network for a couple years. But I think the problem with this show is that it couldn't really find its audience because it ran on Cartoon Network like for kids. Uh But when you look at it, it's set like a sitcom with Bugs and Daffy as roommates. And then all the other (laughs) characters are like their neighbors or their friends. And it's really almost like a Seinfeld. A lot of the jokes are just jokes an adult would enjoy. And I always loved this show. I watched it when it was coming on. I watched all the new episodes. And I just went back to it because it just does so much that you would not expect with a kid's show. And it's not rated R, right? Like, I feel like... Mm -hmm adult cartoons lean into the raunchiness. Yeah. But it's like, you don't have to be raunchy to be funny. And, like, I don't mind raunchiness, but raunchiness for the sake of raunchiness doesn't work for me. Yeah, absolutely. Kristen Wiig played Lola Bunny. Like, Mm -hmm. it was just really fun. Like, I feel like it shows, like, you can appeal to adults, and you don't even have to really be that nasty. You can just, like, be funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. What What a concept. I really... I really enjoy the show. I feel like it has not gotten enough love. I watch it on Boomerang, the app. I'm sure you can find it other places. I really enjoy the Looney Tunes show. I feel like it's a hidden gem. Watch it and laugh and enjoy it. And you can be an adult and like it.
1: That is a great rec. That's the Looney Tunes show on Boomerang and other places, no doubt. Yes. My pick is also a cartoon. It's an animated pick. As we tape this, many but not all of the Oscar-nominated shorts are online. The animated shorts, as they always are, are a very mixed bag. My personal favorite is Ice Merchants by Joao Gonzalez. This is an entirely wordless animated short about a man and his son who live on a house literally on the side of a cliff far above a town they do business with the town in a strange way. It is beautiful. It is, if you have a fear of heights, it is, um, it <laughs> can be troubling. But it is so effortlessly, exquisitely gorgeous and, you know, warm in a strange way. And it sneaks up on you. And, you know, the ending might not land on you, but the ending landed on me. I was surprised that it did. That is Ice Merchants, which you can find on YouTube right now or also on the New Yorker's screener site. Seek it out. Ice, Merchants by Joao Gonzalez. And that is what is making me happy this week. And if you want links for what we just recommended, plus some more recommendations, sign up for our newsletter at npr.org slash newsletter. And that brings us to the end of our show. Ayesha Roscoe, Mark Rivers, thanks to both of you for being here. Thanks so much.
3: Thank you so much. Always happy to be here. And I will, you know, be the Shyamalan correspondent from here on out. I'm excited
1: <laughs> We want you to be an everything correspondent. Yes. But we'll, we'll steer some Shyamalan your way as well. This episode was produced by Mike cat and Candiccee Lim and edited by Jessica Redi and hello Com in provides our theme music. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Glenn Weldon and we'll see you all next week when we will be recapping this year's Grammy Awards.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Viori, a new perspective on performance apparel, clothing designed with premium fabrics built to move in, styled for life.
3: And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at
0: IXL.com NPR. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org elections.